everyone. We have a wonderful guest on today, Rabbi Steve Leader. He was twice named by Newsweek magazine as one of the most 10 most influential rabbis in America. He is the senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles, serving over 2,400 families at three campuses. He is also the author of such critically acclaimed books as The Extraordinary Nature of Ordinary Things. More Money Than God, Living a Rich Life Without Losing Your Soul. Definitely want to have him on to talk about that. And More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms Us. He's been on so many shows, an often commentator on NPR, ABC, PBS, Fox, CBS This Morning. Uh, It's endless. So please enjoy our really wonderful discussion that we had today about what suffering can mean in your life and the lives of others. I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily. I'm strong enough to handle what you throw me. Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Steve, thank you so much for coming on my show. I'm happy to be with you today. Yes, so we have a mutual friend who's introduced me to a lot of wonderful people, Dr. Mark Goulston. Yes, (laughs) he's an amazing guy and he does very important work. He helps a lot of people who suffer. Yes, he absolutely does. I love um, what we're going to talk about today, especially with what's going on in the United States right now with all of the mass violence and the shootings. So talking about your book, More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms Us, um, is timely. Yeah, unfortunately timely, but it is. And, you know, to be honest with you, it's it's timely not just because of national events, but because everyone hurts, you know, to be human is sooner or later to suffer. So it's, uh, it's a timeless book in that way. Yes, absolutely. So talk about, you know, the impetus for writing this particular book. Mm. Um, this book is, in a sense, a kind of apology. Um, it's, it's my written apology to not only members of my congregation, but to so many others uh, that I tried to help over my first 27 years uh, as a rabbi and as a writer. Uh, So for the first 27 years of my career, I spent an awful lot of time counseling and uh, helping people who were suffering, going through very difficult things. And as you know, Kristen, there are many forms of suffering. There There are many forms of hell, right? There's the 
the hell of loss, the hell of addiction, the hell of a kid in trouble, the hell of divorce, um, you know, the hell of chronic pain, the hell of depression. There, there are many, many, many kinds of hell. And uh, I always said to people, if you're going to walk through hell, don't come out empty handed. Hmm. And, and I did my best to help people come out of their personal hell with something meaningful. But then uh, after 27 years of that, which was five years ago now, something happened to me and I experienced brutalizing pain. Mm. And then I realized that despite my best efforts over those 25, 27 years of helping other people through pain, that I actually knew very little about pain, almost nothing until I experienced it myself. And that much of what I had said to others to help them prior to this experience was um, frankly pretty shallow. Mm. So I wrote this book as a kind of apology to all of those people and as a way of saying, now I understand. Now I understand you better. I understand myself better. I understand uh, what it means to come out the other end of pain in a, in a much deeper way. Uh, now, the book is not about me. I would say it's about 5%, 10% about me, 90% about the journey so many others have taken through all forms of pain and coming out the other side of it. Um, the book is divided into three sections, surviving, healing, and growing, which for me is the trajectory, the, the ideal trajectory of pain. First, you have to survive it. Then you have to heal. And then you have the opportunity to grow. Right. Now, what happened in my specific case was five years ago, I was in a very frightening car accident. And to make a long story short, it resulted in uh, just un unbearable, searing physical pain uh, because of what happened to my spinal cord. And, uh, you know, I, I had never felt or experienced anything like it. And that led to a series of failed treatments. It led to opioids and steroids and more opioids and more steroids and more opioids and more steroids and then surgery and then more opioids and depression. Uh, and it took me a long time to get my arms around it, despite my many years uh, of helping others through pain and my own, you know, fairly deep spiritual mooring and, and, and foundation. So that's the backstory of the book. And, you know, fortunately, it, it seems to be helping, you know, tens of thousands of people. Yeah. So I, I, in that sense, it's achieving its mission. I think it's, it's so interesting when you were, you know, when you were saying, you know, the pain of divorce, the pain, the hell of a kid in trouble, all those things, I, I thought, yeah, the hell of just being a human being. <laughs> of course, you know, sooner, you know, uh, to quote the great sage, Bob Marley, you know, he said, when the rain falls, it don't fall on one man's house. You know, we all get rained on all of us. Yeah, we and, do. And we all suffer in we all suffer things and here's sort of the theological point. We all suffer things we don't deserve. You know? Terrible things happen to good people all the time. Right. And and that requires a kind of spiritual, soulful reckoning that is very difficult, but absolutely achievable. What do you say to people who, you know, blame themselves, spend, a, you know, an ordinate amount of time? Well, what's inordinate? You know, everybody's journey is different, yes. but yeah. that really spend a lot of time um, 
berating themselves that this is what was their fault. They've been a bad person. And so this is why this has happened. Well, sometimes that's true. Right. And that's a very important step, uh, you know, in the process of healing and growing from pain, owning it, own it if it's on you. Uh, and get as much as you can out of the experience and then move on. But I think owning one's own responsibility for one's own circumstances when it is accurate and true is extremely important. You know, don't position yourself as, as the victim when in fact you're the perpetrator. Yeah, yeah, that's now, interesting. That, that, you know, I, I think for, you know, listen, 12-step programs are based on this for addiction. You, you have to own, you have to do what's called a fearless inventory, right? Mm-hmm. Take a fearless inventory of how your behavior has hurt others, the, the things for which you are responsible, right? Now, one of the things, by the way, that I talk about in the book, look, I didn't create a genre here. There are many books about pain and suffering. I, I hope and believe mine is a, is a different kind of book. But one of the things my book talks about that I did not see elsewhere when I researched the genre before writing is what about when you're the cause of the pain? What, what about when you've hurt another? That's its own special kind of pain, right. you know, to know that you've embarrassed your, your child or hurt your family or hurt another human being through your own narcissism or carelessness or ego. Uh, you know, what then? How does one find one's way back after that? And I actually, um, in one chapter in the book called Hurt and Run, I actually lay out four sort of steps for people to go through if you've hurt another. And that if you do actually walk those four difficult and important steps, you deserve to be forgiven. I don't really believe forgiveness is just granted. I think it has to be earned. It can be earned, right? So. Um, you know, so the first half of my answer to your question is, well, sometimes people are responsible for their, for, for their own pain and the pain they've called others. And you need to walk these steps and own it and then, you know, learn what you can from it and then move forward. Okay. I mean, guilt, by the way, is, and it is, does tell us that you're a good human being, right? right? It's the person who has no shame and has no guilt. That's a dangerous person, right? Yes. And we've done many, many shows on that. And I, I always get uh, that that's the most downloaded topic is actually, um, you know, people that have like narcissistic personality disorder, for example, and they're just, their whole life is spent hurting, hurting others and they have no shame, no guilt, you know. Right. Now, you know, was that person victimized at some point early on in his or her life? Probably. Right. Um, So we can sometimes explain it, but not necessarily excuse it. Now to get to your question, sort of the bulk of your question, the meat of the question, what about when the innocent suffer? Then what? Right? Um, first of all, I think saying to someone, I have found in my counseling, my spiritual counseling with people, when they do come in and say, you know, I'm a good person, why is God doing this to me? The first thing I say to them is God isn't doing this to you. I don't believe in that kind of God who picks and chooses, who suffers and who doesn't. I don't think God has anything to do with the suffering of the innocent. And you can almost see the cloud lift just with that simple insight, right? Because they're, they're operating in the world with a pediatric theology. You know, the only thing a five-year-old can imagine is a God who's 
a, a kind of parental figure in the sky who meets out reward and punishment, you know, a kind of Santa Claus God knows if you've been good or, you know, <laughs> right. knows, knows if you've been bad or nice. Right. Um, but that's a very uh, pediatric view, theological point of view, and it doesn't hold up very well when bad things happen to good people, especially when you're the person it's happened to. So the first thing I think we need to do is remove sort of God from the picture in that scenario, because I'm not a fundamentalist. Second, the second thing I try to do is move people off of the why question, because it's the wrong question. Why did this happen to me? I'm a good person. It's the wrong question because there's no answer to that question. Right. It's a cul-de-sac. It's a dead end. And you go around and around and around. So I try to move people as gently but clearly and quickly as possible from the why question to the what and the how. What, given that this has happened, am I going to do about it and about my life? How am I going to live my life going forward? given that this happened to me. And, you know, let me be clear about the book and my own point of view. In no way is this a kind of idealization of suffering. I, I am not here to tell you that suffering isn't really suffering. It's just a step on the path to enlightenment, etc. Right. I think suffering is suffering and pain is pain. And I don't have anything good to say about it. We all wish we never had to enter this club of those who suffered. But as I said earlier, if you're going to go through hell, and we all do, don't come out empty-handed. So I'm not here telling you, Kristen, that this kind of suffering is worth it. But I am here to say neither is it worthless. Mm. There is always something formative and powerful to be learned from pain. Because pain is really, frankly, the great teacher. You know, we don't learn very much from success. It doesn't teach us very much, except to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. Right. It's, it's pain that disrupts our lives and our souls and our hearts. It's pain that wakes us up. It's pain that presents us with an invitation to change our lives. And how people react to it, you know, you being the one in pain is, is very telling. Um, you know, people can hurt other people and they've, they've told themselves a story about how they didn't hurt anyone. It's that other person's fault. They deserved it, whatever. And, you know, you have to figure out uh, how to navigate through that when you know that you, this person did hurt you or this event did hurt you. And sometimes the people in your life that are around you at the time are going to treat you like you have pain and suffering cooties that they're going to catch. Yes. Yes. Well, let me, let me, let me, yes, yes. By the way, people with cancer feel this all the time. They walk into the room and people move away from them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so uh, look, here's the way I, I address that issue. I'm going to put it pretty glibly, but I think also perfectly. And I say this uh, in the book. When you, one of the first things I say to people when they come to see me in pain is you're about to find out who your friends are hmm. and, and who they are not. And when you are in pain and when you are, when you are suffering, it strips away a lot of nonsense in your life. It clears out an awful lot of underbrush. And, and what I tell people is when you are suffering and you're in pain, even if you've caused it, 
to your, you know, even if you're the cause of your own pain, let's say you've done something shameful or stupid and destroyed your reputation and embarrassed your family, etc. What I say to people is the people in your life who really matter don't mind. And the people who mind, they don't matter. Right. When you're suffering, the people who show up, they really matter. And the people who don't show up, move on. Forget them. They weren't your friends. How about if that's, and, your, and, about if that's your family? Well, even, even if it's your family, you really find out what family means when you're in trouble. Yes. You know, family is a kind of uh, uh, a porous term, right? And we can have friends who are family. We can have family who are friends. But you really find out when you're in trouble who matters and who doesn't. And, and sometimes, by the way, you will be disappointed and you will be pleasantly surprised. What would you say to people who, you know, they're going through something, whether it's their fault, partially their fault, not their fault, and the people in their life are just saying things that are so hurtful or, you know, acting yes. like have cooties. Yes. How, how yes. do you counsel someone to deal with that, to put up boundaries around that when they're already in a pretty weakened state? Right. Okay. Well, let's flip, let, if you don't mind, let's flip the question sure. and let's look at it from the other direction. How do we counsel people? Who, who's, who have a family member or friend, what do we say to them about showing up, right? What are the do's and don'ts? And I talk about this in the book. There's a chapter all about showing up, right? So let's start with this. First, there are seven words you should never say to someone who's suffering. Never say these seven words. Let me know if you need anything. That is the worst thing you can say to someone who's suffering. First of all, most people who say it don't mean it, right? Secondly, even if you do mean it, you've now given homework to a person who is already carrying a terribly burdensome weight. And now you're giving that person homework to tell you what he or she needs. So don't say that. Be proactive. Just ask yourself. If I were in his or her situation, what would be helpful? And then do it. Don't wait to be asked. Whether it's a hot meal dropped off at the doorstep, carpooling for the kids, play dates for the kids, going to the doctor's appointment to take notes, um, you know, whatever it might be, anticipate the need and meet it. Don't wait to be told or asked. So that's the first thing. Don't say to someone who's suffering, let me know if you need anything. Act, right? Number two, you don't have to know what to say. You know, after 32 years of being a rabbi and visiting the homes of mourners and visiting hospital rooms and visiting nursing homes, when I'm out there in the hallway before I walk into that hospital room, you know, Chris, I still don't know what I'm going to say after all these years. I just know I need to walk through that door. Hmm. And the rest will unfold if I show up with my humanity and an open heart and the ability to listen. The right thing will happen. So that's the next thing. You don't you don't need a plan when when you're reaching out to someone who's suffering. Uh, the pure human act of reaching out means so much. It's and so all much. of us who suffered know this. We know who called. We know who sent a card. We know who dropped off a meal. And we know who disappeared. Right. Now, 
to the to the earlier part of your question or your actual question, which is what about those of us who are suffering? So there's a there's a beautiful saying in the Talmud, very powerful idea. The the sages of the Talmud said the following: the prisoner cannot free himself. The prisoner cannot free himself. None of us, none of us, I don't care who you are, no human being suffers pain better alone. None of us. Because the most painful part of pain is the feeling of isolation, that you're in it alone, that nobody really understands. Now, when you're suffering, find the courage and the strength to reach out. Help. I need you. I'm lost. I'm confused. I'm alone. I'm in the dark. It hurts. Help. Reach out. Because when you reach out, others will reach back and they will help lift you from your suffering. That's a promise. But if you're going to if you try to go it alone stoically, the the pain is exponentially greater. The next thing I would say to the person who's suffering is avoid as much as possible catastrophizing the future. You know, I, I did a lot of research on chronic pain, physical pain before I wrote this book. And it, it's, a, it's a fact that two patients with the identical condition, one, who's, one who catastrophizes the future, this is never going to get better, this is the end of uh, my happiness forever, et cetera, et cetera. That person suffers the pain much more intensely than a person with the identical, identical uh, affliction, uh, the identical disease, the identical diagnosis, who, in, who catastrophizes less and instead changes that inner dialogue from, for example, uh, I'll never feel well again, to something more akin to, you know, it waxes and it wanes. Or the person who says, I'll never be able to, do, to play tennis again, to a person who says, I'll do new and different things because of this. So if, if you can avoid catastrophizing the future as much as possible, look, we're all human and we tend to think the worst. But if you can, if you can reduce your catastrophizing of the future, even 10%, it makes a very powerful change in the way in which you survive and heal from any kind of pain. So those are a couple of very important things. The final thing I would say to you when someone comes to me who is, you know, facing something terribly painful, I always ask, or almost always ask, prior to this, what is the most difficult thing you ever got through in your life? And they always know what it is very quickly. For example, they might say something like, well, it was the death of my mother. You know, I was 15 and it was terrible. And then I'll ask, how did you get through that? And then the person will generally think about it for a moment or two and say, for example, something like, well, I really leaned on my family. Um, I leaned on my friends. Time helped. I, I sought therapy. Whatever it is, they found a way to get through that earlier trauma. And I, and I remind the person that those opportunities, those mechanisms, those coping mechanisms, both internal and external, exist for them now as well. And that if they got through that earlier event, they will also get through this and they will get through it the same way they got through it the last time. In other words, you're basically saying to people who feel like they are in new territory, 
no, it's not as new as you think. You actually know how to do this. And that's a very um, powerful reframing of their current circumstance. Yes, absolutely it is. I lived with my ex-husband, who's a very good friend of mine, uh, chronic pain, opioid addiction uh, that he started taking, you know, in high school to play football and all that. So, um, you know, he had all those things happen um, with him and still lives with chronic pain. And uh, it is such a, uh, it is so difficult because you know that this person is in chronic pain and their ability to uh, have patience is not there. Yes, <laughs> um, yes it's exhausting and it, yeah. it, it, shortens, it, it shortens your patience, it, it increases your temper. But look, I'm not asking for anything more than 10% is what I would say to you, right? Mm-hmm. 10%, catastrophizing 10% less changing the internal dialogue to be 10% more positive than it was heretofore. These are, these make colossal differences. What about someone coming to you and, you know, they, they really haven't had a, you know, religious background or uh, any kind of a spiritual life and they, and they come at this and this is the thing that makes them take a different look at their life, but they are lost in the weeds because they've, they don't have any kind of background to, uh, to pull from. Well, look, I haven't met a person yet who doesn't believe in something. They may have difficulty with the word God because it carries with it a lot of associations that they disagree with. Often people come to see me and say, I don't believe in God. And I just say, that's okay. What do you believe in? Right. And they always go on to articulate some very deep spiritual point of view. They might say, I believe in humankind, or I believe in the power of nature, or I, be- you know, I believe in the cosmos, whatever it is. Um, they're just substituting a different word for what many people mean when they say God. You know, there is no human being's belief that he, that he or she is responsible for the sunrise and the sunset and the pattern of the stars in the sky. You know, we all know there's something greater at work in the universe than any single individual. Uh, and so I, I try again to start to look at what people do believe in instead of what they don't believe in. Gotcha. Someone who comes to me and says, look, I have no faith. I say, well, what, what do you believe in? I mean, do you believe the sun's going to rise tomorrow? And they'll say, well, of course. And I'll say, well, you, you accept that on faith then, right? And I use the word very deliberately. I mean, you do have faith. It may not be faith in the kind of God you hear about on television or, or read about in you know, certain parts of the Bible, but you are a person of faith. I mean, you do believe in, in something powerful beyond yourself. And so let's not worry about what we call that. Let's talk about how your faith in that. So for example, the sunrise view, let's talk about how your faith that, that light follows darkness. Let's talk about how that might help you as you go through this. How right? about, and so you, you, you that that's the approach in in my view how about the the patience that's needed um sometimes you know someone can hurt you because their their age or their personality disorder or whatever you know whatever the reason is and you know you hope 
that they're going to get it one day because not that you want some sort of, and I don't mean get it as in they get it, even though sometimes you, yeah. you, know, you do think that, but I mean, someday you hope that they're going to wake up, not yeah. to give you some sort of appeasement, but to, cause you know that that's going to be transforming for them. Um, and then, you know, sitting with the patients of you probably will never see if they do, yeah. uh, you know, that, that can be well, <laughs> difficult. Well, it can, but at a certain, look, I'll tell you a little secret. I keep a red, a red bowl on the coffee table in my office in front of what I call my couch of tears, quoting the psalmist, you know, this couch where people come to sit and, and weep. And sometimes I point to that. Some, by the way, the bowl serves two functions. One is to hold all the tissues from all that weeping. But I also have it there because sometimes I point to that bowl and I say, you see this bowl? You could sit and cry and hope and pray and be angry for this bowl someday to become a spoon. You could talk to this bowl all day long and ask it to become a spoon for days, weeks, months, years, decades. And at a certain point, you're the fool, not the bowl. And you need to decide how you're going to live your life, not how you're going to change this other person's life. Right. And, and you know, this is true even in the case of death, you know, I sometimes have people come and sit with me and say, you know, I've had a terrible relationship with my father my whole life. He was just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He's been given six months to live. And, you know, I'm going to go see him and I, I, I'm really, I'm sure that this is going to give us closure. And I have to look at that person, Kristen, and I have to say, you know, the odds are that's not true. Right. Because People tend to die exactly the way they live. And, and, you know, I have to manage expectations. Most people don't change very dramatically over the course of their lives. Now, I'm not telling you it doesn't happen, but it's rare. And, and you know, when you are unhappy with a situation, it is much more likely that you're going to be able to change yourself than change that other person. How do you see this? What are your expectations? You know, can you approach this other person's dysfunction and anger with some degree of empathy or sensitivity? But the idea of really changing another human being that fundamentally, it rarely happens. Right. And, and knowing that is in its own way comforting and liberating. Right. I had to learn to... Uh... I was raised to be certain family members protector and every partner that mm -hmm. they've ever had becomes their protector. They sort of abdicate mm -hmm. all their, you know, their, what they think, what they say, all that to other people, which is, which is very unfair. But um, yeah. I had to learn that, okay, I can't change them. I do have to work on how I respond to this their behavior yes. and maybe not be around it. And it's also not my responsibility to save other people from their behavior either. That's right. And nor can you, Right. <laughs> you know, you know, it's, it's a Messiah complex that a lot of people have, but mm -hmm. Messiahs are pretty rare. Yeah, I had the complex for quite a while. Don't have it anymore. <laughs> yeah. And it's liberating, right? Isn't it liberating once you realize that, that this is, 
mostly futile, if not entirely futile. Mm-hmm. And and in a, in a way, it's sort of it, it's I find it to be very liberating to to make peace with what one cannot change. It's very important. I think it's important too to acknowledge those very human feelings of wanting to do that, of wanting to warn people, of wanting to step in. And we're not talking about, you know, of course, if someone's going to do something illegal, um, step in, you know, but just um, immoral behavior, that kind of thing. You, you have to, I had to allow myself to feel angry, to feel like I wanted to go get revenge, to feel all those feelings because I would stuff them down and that would turn into other problems for me. So wallow in it for, you know, as you need to. Yes. And, you know, look, sometimes other people often, in fact, can teach us how not to behave. Yeah. Aren't we all better parents because of the mistakes our parents made? <laughs> yes. I mean, we, we, of course, make our own mistakes going forward. But, but so much, I think, of parenting is trying not to replicate the dysfunction and the mistakes of the previous generation. We make our own, but at least we, we move in the right direction in terms of improvement. And that's not about changing your past or changing your parents. It is about changing yourself and how you choose to live going forward. I want to ask you about this. There's a, there's a lot of uh, mentality out there that is a victim shaming mentality. And I, mm-hmm. there's a lot of debate about what that means and so on. I, it takes a while to get it, to really get what it means. And mm-hmm. once you do, you, you cannot make other people not do that. And what I, what I want to have a you know a spotlight shined on is where does that kind of a mentality come from where 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 you're the where you are blame the victim person where that's your first reaction to uh, i'll give you an example to give them our context so someone has uh their child um, pass away and uh people will sometimes blame that person. Well, they didn't live their life the right way. They didn't take care of their child. They didn't do it. Nothing that's helpful to this person. It's very much victim blaming. And I wonder about the psychology or the spirituality around the need to blame. Yes. Well, look, it's, I think, uh, even subconsciously a way of protecting ourselves from uh, the fear of the same thing happening to us or someone we love. We have to differentiate ourselves from the victim so that we believe we're protecting ourselves from becoming that victim at some future point, Mm -hmm. right? Well, that happened to this family because they're this way and I'm not this way. And therefore that would never happen to me. All right. Now let's, let's talk about one of the most powerful things about pain and how it can ennoble us going forward. And it's related to your very sophisticated, really very sophisticated question. So in the, in the Bible, in the book of Deuteronomy, it's, uh, it says that God puts God's words upon our hearts. Now, the sages ask a very interesting question. Why does it say upon our hearts and not in our hearts? Surely if God has the power to put words upon our hearts, God would have the power to put words in our hearts. Why is it upon our hearts? And here's the answer the sages give. They say that God places words upon our hearts 
And it isn't until our hearts are broken that the words can enter. Mm. When you suffer pain and you find a way through it by reaching out, being reached out to, and all of the other things that, you know, I talk about in this book, your capacity for empathy is profoundly deeper and more powerful. And you stop victim blaming and you start reaching out with much, much greater sensitivity and care and decency and kindness because you have been there. You do understand and you know that it's no one's fault. Right? So the people who do victim blame, I believe have yet to really suffer pain in in a deep way because once you do, you react with empathy toward other fellow sufferers, not disdain and not shame. So I guess what I would say is that, <laughs> that this victim shaming is really a sign of, of immaturity right. more than anything else. You know, I have a friend whose 30-year-old son committed suicide. And one of the things he said to me that bothered him the most was when people would say to him, his name was Ronnie, Ronnie, I can't imagine what you're going through. And this angered him because he knew every parent imagines, imagines this. Every parent has imagined their, his or her child dying. You know, the first time the garage door doesn't open after you hand the car keys over, right? Or the first time you can't find your kid in their way of college or whatever, right? The first time your kid, you know, ran across the street unattended. We've all imagined this. So what is this? I can't imagine how you're feeling. All that is is a way of distancing yourself and protecting yourself from the experience. That's not empathy. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. Right? So I think the the victim shaming comes from uh, essentially immaturity and a lack of empathy. And this is the behavior of a person. Yeah, this is the behavior of a person. Yeah. There, yes. And, and this is the behavior of a person who, frankly, hasn't suffered. Mm. So, you know, Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky said his greatest fear was that his life would not be worthy of his suffering. Uh, That's so profound, so powerful. Can you lead a life worthy of? of the suffering you have endured. And one of the most worthy things we can do after we have survived a painful experience is to show up for others who are also suffering, who are where we have been, and to show up with a full and open heart, not judgment. Right. And it's hard. It, I mean, I, I think about, I've done, I don't know, eight years of of shows on different facets of mental health. And I think about my early shows and the amount of judgment I had if I was in pain over some yeah. narcissist or another. And, and uh, I don't look at that and think, oh, I'm a bad person, but I look at it and go, okay, that's where I was at that point in my life. Well, remember how we started this conversation. What was the point of this book? It was my effort to correct the record. Mm-hmm. It was my apology for my less mature responses and answers to these questions about pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. 
I can forgive myself for being young and naive. And, uh, but when, when that car accident happened and, and I had that spinal surgery and I was addicted to those opioids and I was depressed and I know what it took from myself and others to overcome it all. It, it changed me for the better and no, it wasn't worth it. I wish it never happened. You know, I have a, I had a friend uh, named Paul Miller who, who had three different forms of cancer. And the third cancer was lethal. I remember visiting him in the hospital when he was dying of the third cancer. And he looked up at me and he said, you know, Steve, this much character I don't need. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, I w- isn't that great? I, I wish these things didn't happen. But, the, but given that they do, can you be worthy of it going forward? Can you be, can you be a more beautiful, kinder, gentler human being as a result of it? That's, that's the question. Do you think that this all also is stems from, especially Western society, where we, we really look at people as one dimensional beings, especially with social media and celebritizing and things like that. And I I see people that I'll be sitting with and I can tell that they they're so excited about who I've interviewed. Oh my gosh, you interviewed that person. Oh, cause they're a celebrity or whatever. And I, and I happen to know that person personally and they are the most messed up person, just like anybody else. But yes, I, yes. I, I often say, <laughs> I often say pretty, pretty from afar, but far from pretty. Yeah. And they would say that I mean, my friends would say that too. I mean, one of them calls me, yeah. and, you know, I'm, if, she's such a good friend that I would never say to her, look at your life. What do you have to be upset about? Cause this is her experience. And I know what she's been through that the public doesn't know, but it's fascinating to me, this, this naivete or this one magical thinking um, that comes along with this celebrity stuff or this, your life, you yes. are, you're rich or you're whatever yes. it is. And it's, yes. it's yes. so people you don't want to let go. You of and that. I have you and I, given what we do, um, we have the advantage, and I do mean advantage, of seeing the insides of people's lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a, there's a very old fable about, uh, you know, a small village and everyone's asked to bring their suitcase full of troubles to the town square and put it in the town square. And then everyone else gets a week to look through, every, through everyone's suitcases. And then you get to choose the suitcase you're going to go home with. Mm-hmm. And everyone goes home with their own suitcase. Meaning, if you really, really are on the inside of another person's life, you wouldn't trade. Right. None of, none of us would trade. Now, what is the, the flip side of that that can be really powerful and change your life? The flip side of that is gratitude. You know, it's very hard to be depressed if you're grateful. Right. And, and, you know, this, this Instagram nature of life now causes us to sort of uh, lose a sense of gratitude for our own blessed lives and what we have despite our pain. Uh, there's, there's a very famous uh, Soviet uh, psychiatrist named, named uh, Zirganik, uh, Bluma Zirganik, and she did a study. I'm going to over, overly simplify this study. She showed a number of subjects, a picture of a circle with a small wedge cut out of it and track their eyes. And everyone's eyes go to the missing piece every time and they miss the larger hole. And this unfortunately is life sometimes. 
we're so focused on what we what's missing, this missing piece, that we we miss the much greater whole. This happens to me when I meet with families for funerals. They'll say to me, "Oh, oh, Rabbi, in three more weeks he would have been ninety. Oh, Rabbi, in two more months they would have been married sixty-five years." As if 89 you know, years and 49 weeks isn't a great accomplishment, as if 64 years and 10 months of marriage isn't a beautiful blessing. Right. We, we sometimes miss the, the blessings that, that we have. We, we, we really don't demonstrate a lot of gratitude. And I think if you can focus and work hard at being a more grateful person, by the way, for me, this is where prayer helps. I, I don't believe in asking prayers. When I pray, I'm not asking for anything. I'm, I'm expressing gratitude, right? For, for something as simple as a piece of bread or the fact that I drew breath for another morning, mm. right? I'll pray to get rid of things, not for things. I'll pray to get rid of penniness, to get rid of gossip, to get rid of jealousy, right? To get rid of my narcissism, to get rid of my, you know, ego. So prayer is a great aid in gratitude. Meditation can be a great aid. Saying thank you is, is gratitude. Can you say thank you a hundred times a day? It'll change your life. Yes, it does. It does. A friend of mine that comes on the show, um, uh, Adam Klugman, he and I set our alarms uh, to go off at the same time every day. And uh, it's just to say, just to sit even for 30 seconds or less and go, I receive, I'm blessed, I'm grateful for my life. And then, you know, Go go on, just yeah. stopping for a moment yeah. to say that because yes. we get it, so it caught you, up. Yes, and it makes you far less envious of others mm-hmm. because not everyone gets to be on the inside of people's lives the way you and I do. Right. Um, which which almost definitionely makes you grateful for your own life. Yes. yes. I thank God every day for my own boring life. You know, <laughs> when I see what some people go through, um, but I think that that these are the two sides of the issue you've raised. One is really no one has it any better than you do. No one. You know, there's another beautiful fable. I I say the book deals with grief, which is, it's been very um, helpful to the grief community. You know, I I sort of track where, what categories in Amazon it's doing well in and grief has been one off and on over the past couple of years since it's been out. And there's a little story in the book about a man who goes to see a healer, Uh, to get help with his grief. And the healer says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go around the village, knock on every door. Here's a recipe for for a cake. I want you to get one ingredient from each house. The only rule is it must be a house which has never been touched by death or grief. So the man goes out, knocks on doors, comes back at the end of the day without a single ingredient because he didn't knock on, he couldn't find a single home where death or grief, you know, had not at some point visited. And oddly, despite having failed in the mission, he, he felt better. Right. Now, most people think, oh, he felt better because he knew he wasn't alone in his suffering. You know, uh, everyone has suffered. Now, I don't think that's it. I think it's more nuanced than that. I think it was the conversations that took place in those doorsteps, uh-huh. right? I think it was, have you been visited by grief? We have. That's Here's what happened. Yeah. It was the human connection and the, and, and the conversations about grief and suffering. It was the piercing of that isolation and feeling of abandonment, right? So these kinds of things open us in ways that can profoundly 
change our lives for the better. And yet again, we wish they'd never happened. Right, right. Um, the a healer that I work with, she would never call herself a shaman, but she definitely is one. Mm-hmm. Uh, said to me not too long ago, you know, I'm just glad that you're in the 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 muck with me. Those are the people yes. I want to have around me. I don't want to yes. know everything's rosy and we always have to be positive yes. and la la la. I want yes. people that are going to get in the muck. And I was like, I agree. Oh. You know, people that haven't suffered, they're not very interesting to me. <laughs> They're not. They, they don't have much to, to become, say. They start to become interesting as they have really crappy things happen to them that you feel awful for them, but they, you know, they become yeah. a much more interesting, rich, evolved. Yes. Human. Yes. In a way. Now, here's what we're saying, which is paradoxical but true. In a way, we are more whole when we're broken. Yes. And that's the power of pain and transformation. Oh, well, we could have 80,000 more conversations. <laughs> yes, we could. It is endless. It is endless. Yes. I want to make sure that listeners know you can go to Steve, S-T-E-V-E, leader, L-E-D-E-R.com uh, to yes. find out more information on all of the books that you've written, which yes. are tremendous. Yes. Um, thank you so much for last thank you. coming on the show. Thank you for the work you're doing. And, and uh, it's been an honor, honor, truly an honor to speak with you today. Same here. I'm grateful. <laughs> uh, as am I. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of Mental Health News Radio. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous, and they're just good people. And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, CopeNotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. Sometimes I'm passive aggressive, but never without good intentions. I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial.